0: welcome Timo Arnold. finally on stage. Hello, hello, thank you, thank you Leandro. Lovely to finally be at Frontiers. It's taken me a long time to get here and I seem to have ended up in front of the biggest screen I've ever seen. I know what it feels like or what it must have felt like to do a Steve Jobs keynote in front of this huge thing. Um, I can't promise anything like that, though. Uh, So my name is Timo Arnold, I am a designer who emerged from a film background, I used to make films and and advertising. Um, I uh, sometimes play at academic, I'm a research fellow at the Oslo School of Architecture and Design, where I research emerging technologies and new kinds of design. And I'm also a creative director at uh, the London-based design studio called Berg. Berg is a small studio, we're like 15 people. Uh, so sort of technologists and designers working together to invent the future of uh, products. And we're just six, six and a half years old. I think I work there with some of the smartest people I know. It's very intimidating and very rewarding. Um, we do a lot of work at Berg that is about technology. Um, and we, This is a diagram that Jack Schultz drew a long time ago to describe the kind of area that we work in. Um, It's a very kind of blunt reduction of ubiquitous computing down to things that use electricity, either batteries or power, uh, things that are connected by wires or radio, uh, and things that kind of engage with some kind of human behavior. Um, We design stuff in the middle of this. This is a product that we've been designing for a while. It hasn't been launched, but it's something that's been around for, for a long time. It's a product that we've aimed squarely at kind of reinforcing the strong social ties that you have with your friends, uh, rather than kind of social networks, which kind of look at l- huge networks. This tries to reinforce very strong bonds. It's called a VelaBot, and it works a bit like this. Um, it's a little bot, a little figure of someone that you know, in this case, Matt Jones. Uh, When they're online, it stands up, when they go offline, it falls over, and when they go online again, yeah, you get the picture. So this is a very small uh, intervention as a kind of physical product, as a way of reinforcing a certain idea about social networks. so I wanted to talk a bit today about uh, the kind of new conditions for design that we we see that we try we, we have to work amongst work in, um, and how we how we approach that how uh, we we try to work with with the new materials that we we have the new technological materials, and and what we kind of make out of it, and I think this goes together into something that we call cultural invention, uh, designers cultural invention, so. Uh, our friend Dan Hill, he talks about the idea of dark matter. And I, I like the metaphor of dark matter. It's pulled from theoretical physics. It's kind of a, a metaphor for the 83% of the universe that we can't see. Um, and Dan Hill says that you know, the, 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 a lot of design, a lot of the stuff that we have to do is stuff that we can't see. Uh, there's politics, there's infrastructures, there's protocols, there's structures, there's infrastructure. There's new materials that are both invisible and visible. Um, we need to know about these things in order to do design with them, and uh, it's changing very rapidly. Another friend of ours, an, an, a Berg alumni, Tom Armitage, also said that in, uh, the systems literacy may be the literacy for the 21st century. Um, a literacy with systems and literacy with infrastructures and the stuff that underlies our, our kind of the surface of interaction is actually a really, really important uh, literacy to have. And it's something that we're going to have to engage with in design and edu- education and all sorts of places. So taking as an example, um, you know, Availabot, on its surface, it's an incredibly simple USB peripheral. Uh, but underneath, it's got this enormous amount of stuff that nobody ever sees. All of the, the things about transport, the way that it connects to the internet, the way that it interfaces with USB, all of these things, all the way down to the physical... Uh, and then underlying all of that is Shenzhen in China, where this stuff actually gets made, uh, which is another incredible kind of pot of dark matter that you know, we have very little literacy in actually. It's only very large companies that get to have a literacy in the way that products get made in places like Shenzhen. So Availabot for us was a kind of experiment to see how manufacture works and to uncover some of these, uh, these kind of dark, the dark matter behind a simple looking product. One of the preoccupations that we have uh, is a kind of, uh, a bit of a reaction against this language of seamlessness. Uh, we've heard even today sort of talk about transparency and invisibility, and there's a, we think it's a bit of, a, bit of a, uh, an unhelpful term to actually start looking at products. So start looking at the kind of interaction that we need to create. Uh, we end up with visions like this. This is Microsoft's future Office video, um, which, to me, is very cold and very, has, has very little below the surface of the interaction. It's very beautiful. It's very high production value. Um, and it's all about kind of seamless interfaces with the world. Very beautiful, very nicely produced, but I don't think there's much meaning there. And this is what, I think this is what you end up with if you take the kind of rhetoric of, of ubiquitous computing, of seamlessness, of invisibility, of transparency. This is what you end up with. It's kind of a kind of cold vision of the future where everything is kind of presented to you as you need it and car windows start changing and augmented reality happens and it all looks a little bit, a little bit strange and a bit, it's not exactly the, the future that I want. So I think you know, the interfaces that we're using are the primary surface through which we interact with culture. They're not disappearing. They're becoming more visible. They're becoming more present. Uh, and I think that might be a fine thing. That's actually fine. Designers, we're very good at dealing with materials, like the material reality of design, design has been very well understood for a long time. Um, we're very good at creating beautiful seams, the kind of going with the grain of the material, finding the juxtapositions and the ways that materials work together, the way that think we can make products legible, making things understandable. Uh, we're very, very good at that. Um, we strive for a kind of design that makes things legible. And I think seamlessness is not the right model for designers to use. Um, Matt Jones, uh, colleague at Berg, he invented, the uh, sort of coined the term immaterials to describe the new materials that we work with. He talks about these, these four things, obviously there's more, but these are the four things that we started off with. Sociality, the fact that our products have you know, people in them, we, we connect to other people through products. Uh, our products are now using data, so data is you know, one of the ways that products work. They generate data, they use data from the internet. Um, products work over time. You know, things ha- unfold, interactions unfold over time. Um, and you know, we, don't, we have a sort of limited set of vocabulary for talking about that. And perhaps service design has been one of the ways that we've actually started to be able to talk about time. And finally, radio. Like, products are built out of radio. Um, they involve a kind of... Uh, uh, a lot of products use this kind of invisible uh, material that we have no knowledge over. So I wanted to talk a bit about some of the explorations we've done uh, with radio. Um, this is Tony Dunn from the Royal College of Art. He talks about all electronic products are hybrids of radiation and matter. Radio space is actual and physical, even though our senses detect only a tiny part of it. Uh, so he's talking about the fact that our, our kind of we have this invisible landscape that we live amongst that we have very little knowledge of. I've done a lot of research for the last five years or so into RFID, RFID is one of those interesting technologies that everyone kind of uses. I'm sure you all have RFIDs in your pockets and in your bags. Uh, we use it for paying for public transport. We use the Oyster Cards in London, as was mentioned before. Um, and we also you know, use them for, to open doors and you know, all sorts of things. And they're inv- this is like an invisible technology that's embedded inside all sorts of physical things. Um, it's it's a fascinating technology it's incredibly ubiquitous and it's it's completely invisible Um, this invisibility causes a lot of sort of problematic uh, mythology Um, people are really against the technology it's a a scary thing when people don't know what's going on there's a funny mythology that if you have an RFID chip on you, you can be tracked by satellites Uh, and obviously that has no relation to the, the physical material of RFID but it's become a kind of predominant mythology through popular media so we decided to have a look at RFID and to see what we could do with it. Uh, it's quite a fascinating technology. You, see, you can't see what's going on in here. These are RFID readers, a bit like the kind of things you see in buses, underneath the, bu- the ticket gates in buses and tubes. Um, and we'd have, we have no idea what it does. These are little black squares. It's literally a black box technology. Um, and without kind of some more knowledge of what it does, we can't really design with it. Um, so in the spirit of you know, making to think Uh, thinking through making, we have to make stuff in order to to think about it and express it. We created a visualization uh, of RFID. uh, And this visualization was made by using a technique called light painting. Um, We took one of the RFID readers and we turned the lights off in a room. Um, We then poked at the RFID reader with a LED with an RFID attached to it. And the LED flashed every time it detected an RFID signal. Um, we photographed that. We took took long exposure photographs and these photographs then reveal something about the shape of that RFID field. When we put those photographs back over the original photograph we start to get a sense of the kind of space, the kind of material reality of of RFID, the space that it inhabits. Um, and It allows us to think of RFID as a material that we can use alongside other things in interaction design um, we did the same thing for the Oyster card in London. Uh, we mapped the RFID around it. And really this is a kind of, it's an experimental design project that uses a kind of probe to start looking at the technology and unpacking it as a way of thinking about the material, as a way of talking about the material uh, it, at places like this. We also created a uh, short film. So this very short film takes the trope of a chain reaction and reinverts it by saying that nothing touches. It's all about proximity and interaction and radio and things that happen at a distance. Uh, and it takes on that kind of cultural trope of, of, uh, of chain reactions. Has anyone seen Fishley and Weiss' The Way Things Go? It's like half an hour of kind of chemical reactions. It's a beautiful film. So we wanted to take on a kind of existing thing and turn it into something that makes a comment about the sort of immaterial reality of the technologies that we have to work with. So the second thing that the kind of new and emerging kind of condition for design is this uh, the fact that we're starting to work with products that are smart um, with algorithms and systems that have a sense of the world and can have some agency in that world. Uh, this was a Guardia- The Guardian newspaper in London. Uh, it recently talked about 20, twenty reasons to be cheerful in two thousand and twelve. This was number one because you're about to have a decent conversation with a robot. Obviously, this is clearly you know this is fired by Siri. Siri is a, is, has become a kind of cultural trope. It's become something that everyone talks about when they think about uh, the kind of the the, the invasion of of uh, smart products and and smart uh, systems into into our products and into our lives. Um, it's made us think differently about the iPhone. The iPhone is now a different, a different object now that Siri exists. We have to treat it slightly differently. I'm very fascinated by, by how we're having to treat it differently. This is a mapping of uh, a Roomba robot, uh, and a, sort of an uh, electronic vacuum cleaner that cleans your house. Um, it's really interesting that we have these things, some people own these things, but we have very little idea how they actually work. So this is a light painting of all the the movement that a Roomba takes as it hoovers someone's bedroom. Uh, it's kind of an alien picture, but it's quite beautiful. Here's another mapping of someone else's house by a Roomba. Kevin Slavin at Lyft in 2011 talked about the fact that with algorithms, we can write the algorithms, but we can't read their behavior. We end up with things like the flash crash of 2008, where you know, no one knows why so, so much money was written off the stock market because of some, algor- some choices made by algorithms. So we're living alongside objects that now have some kind of behavior and motive and agency. Um, and we, we have to find new tools to understand the way that they work. This is fascinating. This is a review of a Evolution Robotics Mint automatic hard floor cleaner 4200 on Amazon um, where the reviewer has had to, there's such a complex product, that the reviewer has to, had to resort to personality and character in order to review it. Um, the personality of the bot is okay. It's more like a, a clinical, efficient nurse doing its job. It isn't quite as chipper as other cleaning bots, but it gets the job done. So the Amazon review, the very popular Amazon review, is reviewing this Hoover as if it was a character, as if it was a living being. I think that's really significant. So f- research by Friedman says that you know, people... Uh, this is re- research into, into the Sony Ibo robotic dog that came out a long time ago. 75% of the contributions confirm the understanding of iBo as a technological gadget, but at the same time, 60% of the contributions confirm the understanding of iBo as being a, as a being with an inner mental life. Friedman and her colleagues continue, co- conclude that many owners of iBo are fully aware that iBo is a technological gadget, but iBo simultaneously awakens feeling, feelings in them as if iBo were a living being. So s- some. A large proportion of owners of iBo think of iBo as something that has a, as a, a sort of inner life. This kind of echoes things that we see with, with uh, popular media. Um, John Lasseter, in a very interesting quote in the Steve Jobs book, talks about how the fact that products have an essence for the, to them, a purpose for which they were made. If the object were to have feelings, these would be based on its desire to it, fulfill its essence. The purpose of a glass, for example, is to hold water, if it had feelings, it would be happy when full and sad when empty. So it's a very common trait to think about objects and products as kind of things that have feelings in them. It's not something that's alien to us at all. It's the same reason why we feel sad for Big Dog. It's the same, you know, we have, we have feelings for this, uh, this poor robot. And also the same reason why it's quite exciting and uncanny to watch these things as they start to interact with each other. It's almost as if they don't need us anymore. So Rodney Brooks is a professor of AI um, in the States. Uh, He's a very smart guy. He's a pragmatist in AI. Uh, He makes to think he has a similar method to the kind of designs that we do. He wants to improve inter- art- artificial intelligence works by actually making it. Um, he says that we'll be lucky if we can make robots as smart as a puppy. And he's talking about the next 50 years. Um, so at Berg, we've taken that as a bit of a challenge. And we're wondering what it would take if we could make all of our products as smart as a puppy. Uh, and you know, what if we could think about products as companions, as a kind of companion species, um, whether it be they kind of you know pets or houseplants, we don't know yet. Um, but it's a it's a it's a way of thinking about our products as companions rather than as interfaces and UIs and tools. As thinking about them as, a, as something that we live alongside rather than something we use. I guess our first venture into this area is a product called Little Printer. This is a proposal for a new way of thinking about uh, uh, connected products. It's a small uh, thermal printer that every day, as many times as you want, prints a small uh, newspaper, a tiny mini newspaper that's pulled from your social web, pulled from your networks, pulled from the things that you subscribe to. phone. It has no desktop interface. Um, it's a way of thinking about printers in a world where we don't necessarily have desktop computers, where things are much more likely to be controlled through, through mobile phones than through, uh, through the web or through, through computers. You can send messages between printers. the plan is to launch Little Printer in the very near future, Um, it's a proposal, it's a kind of an idea that maybe all interfaces don't have to be through screens, that we can have other kinds of interaction, other kinds of interfaces and data and things in our lives that don't require us always being uh, engaged with the glowing rectangle. Uh, And there's something very lovely about paper, the way that paper in, in, in many ways kind of folds into our wallets, folds into our sketchbooks, goes out in the world, gets pinned on fridges, gets pinned into the world, it becomes much more of an artifact of, of our world than than appearing at an iPhone screen or an iPad screen. Um, there's something very delightful about having your kind of very ephemeral data in a different format and actually making uh, kind, of a, kind of delightful interaction with, with the world. So just to sum up, I think, you know... Uh, My colleague, Jack Schultz has a fantastic way of thinking about design. Uh, This quote from a while ago, some people, they are wrong, in brackets, say design is about solving problems. Obviously, designers do solve problems, but then so do dentists. Design is about cultural invention. And I think this is kind of the key to the way that we're thinking about products, that uh, interfaces are the kind of key surface upon which we interact with culture. Um, They are part of culture. We're inventing a a cultural medium. Um, And it's not uh, just about tools anymore. It's about things that we live alongside, things that accompany us. And finally, James Murphy of LCD Sound System has a brilliant quote, the best way to complain is to make things. Thank you.